Welcome to TLD Talks, where we share insights about key legal and business matters that are impacting SMEs today. Bringing together experts from a range of backgrounds, we'll be tackling the issues that matter to you. I'm Ed Simpson, CEO of The Legal Director, and today I'll be talking to one of our very experienced lawyers, Chris Parr, and in this episode, we'll be covering the essential elements of negotiating contracts. By the end of the podcast, you'll understand why it's critical to read and understand all the terms of your contracts, how to avoid entering into a contract when you don't mean to, how to spot some of the time bombs that might be lurking in the small print and effectively diffuse them, and how to deal with some of the common problems that we often see SMEs grappling with during the contracting process, especially when they're dealing with larger organisations. So, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Ed, good morning. So, I want to start off very simply with why contracts are important, in particularly in a business context. I always like to start with two particular analogies, pictures. The first is the fire extinguisher. They sit in the corner of the room and do nothing, perhaps for months, perhaps for years, uh, but never use. You never have a fire. Contracts are a bit like that. They tend to get put into the filing cabinet and get left. And, and the best contracts in the world are the ones that never get looked at again because it means everything goes to plan and smoothly. The other visualization I have is, is of machines. Think of the contract as a machine. You would not throw a box of cogs into a box, shake it about and hope that it makes the machine that, that you want to have. And, and contract building is the same thing, really. You, you, you put together the contract to, to make the machine, to make the thing that you're trying to have from the contracting process. So contracts are important when things go wrong. I suppose that's one of the key things. They don't matter at all. Like fire extinguishers don't matter at all if everything goes to plan. But if things go out the window, then you need to be able to put your hands on this piece of paper, virtual or real, as, as the case may be, and hope that it gives you the answer to the question. Great. So taking your machine analogy there, Chris, what are the key components for a contract to come into existence and be, be valid and binding? I think the first one, possibly underappreciated, um, is the intention to create legal relations is, is the way it's put. But it's basically the intention to be bound legally by the arrangement. So I can, I can happily say, well, Ed, I'll, I'll take you out to dinner next Tuesday. But I don't expect you to sue me when I don't. Whereas when two businesses are talking together, there is, a, I think, a very strong presumption that their whole reason for being is to, is to make contracts. They have an underlying um, intention to create legal legal relations create a contract. The second pair of, of activities, offer and acceptance. I make an offer, hey, Ed, I'll buy your car for £1,000. You say, well, no, it's £5,000. Um, I, I think I'm buying your red car and you, you think you're selling me your blue car. So offer and acceptance, counter-offer, counter-acceptance goes on through the negotiation process. But there is a point where the law says that that moment you agreed. So being very clear about offer and acceptance, I think, is, is vital. The technical legal term that comes out next is consideration. Consideration to me has always been the, the payment, the exchange of value. Consideration is always said it has to be uh, adequate, but it doesn't have to be enough. So a thirsty man in the desert might pay a million pounds for a bottle of water. The law will not say anything about that million pounds as being 
a problem. It's just that's the consideration for water on that day at that time. So the exchange of value, vital piece of contracting requirement. And certainty, and I think I think certainty has become more of a thing, I suppose, in, in recent years. The courts, I think now, are looking at contracts and they're saying, well, what do the words say? And are the words certain? And are they clear? If you don't have certainty, if I say, well, I'll give you something for your car, we don't have a contract. There's no way we can have a contract because we have no certainty of a vital element of the deal here. So intention to create legal relations offer an acceptance, this idea of the battle of the form, I'll sell you something on my terms. Well, no, I'll accept what you've offered me, but it has to be on my terms, that idea of battle of the forms. Consideration, exchange of value, and this idea of clarity, certainty of terms. And on that last one, I think that's where you see a lot of effort going into the specification in a contract. So what it is that's actually being delivered, whether it's widgets or a a sophisticated machine. Yes, and and And, I would say as a practical piece of advice to all clients get a bit obsessive about the specification did did i say the red car or the blue car did we come to specific agreement and and i think not enough emphasis is placed on that yeah and i think particularly around the functionality of sophisticated machinery sophisticated software and often we see problems where there was an expectation on one side that the machine would do a certain thing or the software would provide a certain answer or work in a certain way, but that's not actually captured in the contract. So what, what sort of questions, again, using your machine analogy, you as the, the legal engineer, what sort of questions would you be asking your clients to sort of face up to as they're going through that hard work of defining the specification of what it is that's being bought and sold? I think functionality, you put your finger on it very well. What is this machine? Are you building a a machine that that, that supplies sausages or chocolate biscuits? What's the precise nature of the output? Does everyone understand that? You you say chocolate biscuits. Well, now we can start to get into real deep discussion about the nature of chocolate biscuits because there are probably 50 or 60 chocolate biscuits on the market. And so the more complex the, the structure, the more you have to just get obsessive about that thing. Just thinking about those essential components that we talked about, I noticed that you didn't mention anything about contracts having to be documented or written down or signed off by a director. And I think when we think about contracts in a business context, we imagine lots of small print, potentially very lengthy documents. Can you give me an example of how a business might find itself in a binding contract without intending to do so or or even without knowing that it's done so? Leading on from that and and picking up on that essential component of certainty of terms, if the contract's not written down, how do you know what the terms of the contract are? Yes, maybe the greatest contractual misconception is that an oral contract is not worth the paper it's written on, which everyone laughs at. But it's not true because the law is that the law abhors a vacuum and and, and the law has every component of every type of contract that anyone can ever think of ready and waiting on the statute books, on the case law, common law basis. So there is no such thing as a hole in the contract because the law will fill that hole. If two businesses are talking together, they have what the law calls a course of 
dealing or course of business. And, and the judges, who are the final arbiters of, of, of what's gone on here, will take evidence as to, well, how did you do it before? You've done it five times before. How, what happened each of those five times? And the judges from that will start to construe, well, this is how you normally do it. We'll assume that's what you meant this time around. So oral contracts, contracts totally without writing, easily created because the law gives you all the bits and pieces of the machine. Um, how does that happen in practice? Well, uh, it is not unusual to have, let's say, a sales and purchasing team, one on each side. So purchasing calls up sales of the supply side and says, I want 5,000 units in Paris next Tuesday. And, and, and the sales person, perhaps not properly trained, says, yeah, fine, I can, we can do that. And in legal terms, that probably is enough. We know who we've got parties, property, price, got the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, the how much. You've ticked all these these relatively easy boxes. And now we know that 5,000 units are going to be in Paris next Tuesday at, at a pound a, a unit, whatever. And the law says the person on the other end, the purchasing side, is entitled basically to take them at their word. The deal is done. It is ridiculously easy for businesses to fall into those contracts. So we've seen how easy it can be in a business-to-business context to create a contract that might not be written down and and potentially that one of the parties doesn't realize they have created. What advice would you give to, to SMEs as to how to avoid falling into those sorts of traps? It's process, absolute process. So when if you have someone taking phone calls from customers, give them a script, it becomes perhaps a little irritating, but we know why they have to do it. Training anyone in the staff who might be in a position where a contract could come into into being, get them trained, say, well, actually, yes, before we sign off on that contract, I will need to put, give you our terms and conditions or whatever, whatever the mechanisms you have for putting brakes on the system. These days, the joy of, of websites, they can have terms and conditions on them. Click on that and you'll see the terms on which we do business. There's no foolproof magic activity that you can use, but training, awareness, using forms online. You have to find a way to get the other party to essentially acknowledge, yes, these are the terms and conditions. Thinking about another scenario, one that a lot of SMEs encounter, especially where they're dealing with a counterparty that's bigger than they are, which is the counterparty saying, yes, please, we'd like to buy your goods or we'd like to buy your services, but we're only going to do it on our standard terms. Why does that matter? And why shouldn't you just sign the contract that your counterparty has given you? That's a very interesting and dynamic question. And I would preface it by saying it isn't always the little guy against the big guy. I, I used to work for, for Monsanto, a um, $9 billion company at the time. Yeah, a lot of our customers were bigger than us. Why do the contract terms matter? Well, typically, purchasing lawyers write quite aggressive terms and conditions to say that if you don't give me precisely what I want, precisely when I want it, for precisely this right price, I am going to take you to the cleaners. The violence that can be wrought through aggressive terms and conditions must be guarded against. And so glibly or, or blindly just saying, oh, yeah, well, it doesn't matter. If you get your T's and C's wrong 
or you get the wrong T's and C's more accurately, and you get sued for all the losses that flow from your failure to perform properly. It could be billions, and it can take the company out. And your insurance may be sensible, but it's still inadequate. And these days, anything into medical, anything into big IT, anything into power station or into NASA, or the outcomes can be huge, selling into the oil industry. So we're starting to link back to the specification and, and how that can be hard work, but it's, it's worth the hard work to get the specification right and understanding exactly what it is that's being delivered. Are there some other examples of things that might be hidden away in the small print that a business that's presented with this almost an ultimatum of, yes, we'll deal with you, but you have to use our terms and conditions what are some of the other time bombs that might be lurking in there? Yes, there are a few biggies uh, and commercially one leaps to mind that, that potentially is enormous is the ownership of the intellectual property. I worked on two projects in Switzerland where we bought pharmaceutical companies and, and we discovered that one of them had been trading on terms that gave all of its IP to the client who instructed them to do the research. Essentially, they were doing this fantastic work, inventing all these, these great solutions to various things and handing all the reports over to the client saying, thank you very much, we'll take our fee and, and we'll see you later. We turned all that around by, by changing the terms and conditions of the transactions and saying, well, no, actually, you own the right to use the thing we made for you or we invented for you, but all the other intellectual property is ours and we can do with that what we wish. And the business fortunes transformed. Recently, force majeure clauses have become a thing. I was around when the first Gulf War, which was the first trigger that, that I'd ever had to, to have to go and look at a force majeure clause in earnest, because they're the sort of clause which comes at the 14th page of a tightly written script. Clause 427 is force majeure, and everyone says, well, that never happens, does it? Um, well, the, the first Gulf War brought me into that world, and you suddenly find they're not they're deficient. COVID is the current one. No one saw it coming. No one drafted their force majeure clauses to cover pandemics in the way that we've now learned pandemics work. But remember, force majeure gives the party right not to perform and then not get sued for not performing. So force majeure is, is a much more potentially dangerous provision than, than perhaps it's given credit for. Payment terms is another thing close to my heart. I'm working in another environment on, on payment terms with the, with the small business secretary. Her whole function now is, is, is pursuit of payment. Indemnity, the, someone sent me something today, even. Indemnity is the most dangerous word in the English lexicon because it spreads the liability net so very, very wide. And it gives you way more than standard contract damages would, would give you in terms of, of both benefit if you get it or risk if you, if you pay it. And they get slipped in. Lawyer drafters love putting in indemnity for breach of contract. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's often shows up some of the differences between jurisdictions and how business practice has has developed in different jurisdictions. I know that in in America, uh, having indemnities for for pretty much everything is quite common, whereas here in Britain, it's seen as not. And at the end of the day, if we're thinking about the contract as being a way in which the two parties, the buyer and the seller, are apportioning risk between themselves. The idea of an indemnity completely changes the fundamental basis in which at least one of those parties 
thought it was entering into the contract. And as you say, it's something that's probably hidden away on page 14 of, of a very long set of terms and conditions, small print. And then the, the other one I wanted to mention, which is automatic renewals. So especially if you're buying a service, not being aware because you haven't read properly or haven't fully understood what it was that you're signing up to and, and finding that what you thought was a one-year deal is automatically renewed because you didn't give the cancellation notice in the right way at the right time. And suddenly you're having to explain to your finance director why he needs to make a provision for another three years cost of that particular service. So another trap. That one, funny enough, works both ways. Is it better to have automatic renewal as a seller? Because it's surprising a lot of sales organizations forget that the customer turns up and says, well, yeah, but we automatically renewed. And, and the supplier doesn't know. So it isn't always on the buy side that that bites you. It's a very interesting philosophical debate. Is it better for the organization to have automatic renewal or automatic end? That's that's, that's a very interesting debate in, in organizations. And, and it isn't always the obvious solution. So thinking about the business that is faced with that response from their counterparty, we're only going to deal with you on our terms what practical advice can you give to the MD or the FD of that business that, re- that really wants the sale? How would you help them to, uh, to approach that issue? I think we start from, from the notion that the very first thing we talked about, yeah, the, the, the formation of the contract, what we're actually dealing with is, is a deal between the buyer and the seller. So we shouldn't be afraid of facing the reality well we need to we need to agree some terms okay you've sent me yours i'll have a look at them probably 80 percent is going to be okay you, you can just read it through yeah okay it's not quite how i would have written it or it's a little bit tougher but basically that one that's okay then you hit the big blocks and and and, and liability would be one there's indemnity we've talked about that you find this indemnity for lateness or, or you know, some crazy liquidated damages provision which you say, well, mm, our history of supply eh, isn't always that great. We're often a day late, a week late, and then we're going to get caned for £10,000 a day for hundred days of, up to 100 days of late. As a, as a risk analysis, you say, well, mm, that's going to eat all our profit. So that's where I've got to go and have the discussion. And I think there's a reality here. If you can't do it, don't do it. Don't just say, oh, well, we'll just cross our fingers and hope because you're now back betting the company that things are going to go right. So I think just being open and honest with the other side saying, okay, we can accept 80, 90%, 95%, maybe with only one clause that you find really objectionable. But you have to face up to the reality and not just pretend that it'll be all right. Face up to it, ask them why. Hang on, why do you want this massive liability? What's, what's the problem? They might explain things that you can help them with. It's all part of the sort of open negotiation technique of not being afraid to ask why. And then you learn and then you can come up with creative solutions around, you know, well, we can't do that. But I know, I know someone in insurance who might better sell you a decent package that can cover this for you. And it'll be an extra, if you want me to buy it, it'll be an extra thousand quid on the price. How do you reckon? And, and that's very much the, the sort of advice that TLD lawyers are giving to people is, is help, helping their clients to understand the meaning of the terms that are being presented to them and then 
working out what's acceptable, what isn't, and for the things that aren't acceptable, why they're not reasonable in the context of the deal, and then helping to find creative solutions. But it, it all starts with that idea of the business owning the contract and understanding it and, pu- and putting the time and the effort into reading it, understand all those all those terms and conditions. Yes. And, and the ownership um, of the contract point, I think, is is powerful. I always advise the contract is not mine. I mean, I've, I've heard so many times, the lawyers will sort the contract, the business people do the business. And I always stop everyone at that point and say, no, this contract is not mine at all. It's your business document. Contracts are roadmaps for, for how things are going to work. You, you can do a deal today and it's still running in five years' time. Who, who remembers what was said back in, in December of 2021? Um, well, the contract's got it all written down. People change. I, I, I used to negotiate in Japan with Panasonic, for example. And I've sat in Panasonic's offices and talked to them. And, and I'd come back three months later and the whole team had changed. Facing up to the reality of the contract, the contract is a business tool just in the way that your lathes are business tools, your reactors are business tools. It's a tool. Use it. Chris, you've given some great advice today on identifying some of the traps for the unwary business in contracting. As we draw things to a conclusion, can I ask you to give your three top tips for any SME that's entering into contracts? Mm. Yes. Number one, I think embrace the tool, use the tool come to like the tool and don't bet the company your business is not worth one contract for the sake of all the hundreds and thousands that will come in the future and keep it as simple as possible do not get drawn into the world of legalese which doesn't exist say things openly and and clearly and simply and you've got a chance that your fire extinguisher will work fantastic Uh, thanks chris that brings us to the end of the podcast Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed our discussion today, you can subscribe to our monthly TLD talks covering a wide range of legal and management topics. You'll find the details on our website, www.thelegaldirector.co.uk, and you can also find us on Spotify and Google. If you'd like to know more about negotiating contract terms or the wider work of the legal director, then do give us a call on 0203 053 8613 or visit our website.